you're listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and Considering the Coconuts. This is Season 2, Episode 2, Wayfinding in Moana and in the Church. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam. Hey, Carrie. I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from your dog, Declan. Oh boy, can you hear him whining in the background? A little bit, but we'll just know for our listeners that that's Carrie's dog. He's not, you know, hurting or in pain. He's, he's not just, injured. He's not hungry. He's just unhappy. Just it's that's just his hours. general. Yeah, that's just his general demeanor, right? Is unhappiness. Four hours till dinner. I feel bad for him. He spends his whole day looking forward to dinner, and then it's over in a second. Oh, just a mad dash for the bowl, and then crunch, and then it's done. Oh, yeah. I kind of relate to that, though. <laughs> Maybe we could do a whole episode on what Declan teaches me about how God loves me. There you go. <laughs> He's a great tool for theological reflection, as is Moana, it turns out. As you all know, one of my favorite films. I think I managed to refer to it once per episode. Yeah, we, we talked about it quite a bit in season one, and here we are going to do a deep dive on one aspect of Moana. There are plenty of different things we could talk about in this particular movie, but we're going to talk specifically about something that touched both me and Carrie when we first saw it. Uh, but before we get there, let's do our quotes from the scriptures and from our nerd canon. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Peter said, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced, and they praised God, saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. And this quotation from Nerd Canon comes from Maui in Moana. It's not just sails and knots. It's seeing where you are going in your mind, knowing where you are by knowing where you've been. I first saw Moana, I walked out of the theater thinking to myself, that was a movie about where the church is right now in the Western world. And when Carrie and I started talking about Moana, we realized that we both had that same reaction to the movie. And so we're going to talk about that today, the paradigms that are shifting for Moana on her island and then as she goes out to become a wayfinder, and then how those same type of paradigms are shifting in the church as we move through past a 20th century model of church. Uh, and when we say the church, we're talking about the big C church, not necessarily individual churches, but the state of the Christian church, or what we might call Christendom. In our diocese in the Episcopal Church in Connecticut, we're having a lot of conversation around the unraveling of the 20th century parish model that was so prevalent um, after World War II, in the, at least in the United States or North America, and the difficulty that churches are facing now with changing demographics, shrinking numbers, less, uh, less money than before, and the struggle that we're all kind of going through of figuring out how are we being called by God in this changing age. And as a leader, 
I like, I've been drawing a lot of cues from Moana and her quest. So I walked out of Moana the first time of seeing it after crying, of course, like three times throughout that movie, with one particular line from the very first song playing in my mind. And that was the chief singing, tradition is our mission. And Moana, there's so much to do. That resonated very deeply with me. Why did it resonate with you? Oh, because my church is busy doing so many things um, and feeling like sometimes the reason we do things is because we've always done them. The tradition is literally our mission, keeping this institution, which is pretty weighty and very complicated, running. And the word institution is important there. We both heard a sermon, Carrie and I, uh, by a wonderful bishop of the Episcopal Church, Barbara Harris, at our annual convention here in Connecticut a couple of months ago, where she uh, drew a really sharp distinction between institutions and movements, and how in the early days of the church, the church was a movement of people, the Jesus movement. And over time, that church became an institution whose real true mission was to continue itself Right, and the original church was on the outskirts of society, persecuted, and only later did it get tied to the you know existing power structures become materially extremely wealthy. And now that we're facing uh, lesser resource, fewer resources and fewer people, and, and frankly, fewer, a lesser amount of cultural acceptance of being Christian, we're looking more and more like the early church in a lot of ways, which is why one writer that we're particularly fond of in the Episcopal Church in Connecticut calls the time we're in, we've experienced the great unraveling of Christendom, that time when the church was full of power and privilege and close to the center of society. And now we've, we're experiencing what's called the new missional age, a time when we look more and more similar to the early church. And with that change comes the need to change up how we do church, how we are, go about being the body of Christ in the world. So when Carrie and I watch Moana, we see a very similar thing uh, happening with the way that the old paradigm, this tradition is our mission paradigm, is it's at odds with Moana's just trying to discover this new paradigm, which is actually an older paradigm. One thing I love about thinking about the church in terms of Moana is that the future isn't bleak in it. I love Moana's optimism and excitement around her trajectory. And one of the things I, it helps me to remember as a leader in this church, in this age that we're in, is that if the church of the 20th century or Christendom is dying, is in its death throes, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of fear, but there's also hope that something can be born from that, can be resurrected, and that God is still at work no matter what. If our church structures die, doesn't mean that God is going to die. It means that we need to rediscover how to be God's people in the world. And seeing the optimism, the joy of Moana's journey really just gives me a lot of hope. One of my favorite things that I've heard our bishop say, uh, and he's quoting from somebody else, uh, is that, um, that the church of God doesn't have a mission in the world. It's that the God of mission has a church in the world. In other words, that God is a God of mission and we can join that mission if we want to. And that mission might not be in the buildings that we call churches. It might be out in the community. Or we don't need to draw a binary there. It's, it's a both and. Where these places that we call church 
are not necessarily needing to be as insular as they have been in the past and fully self-contained, but that the mission of God exists beyond the walls, within and beyond the walls of the church, and we're being invited to come out of those walls and to see what God is up to where we live and to see how we might be able to join how God is moving, what God is involved in, in the healing and reconciliation of all creation. And that is a much larger mission than keeping the church in business. And so the, the paradigms are changing and it also requires changing leadership. And I know that from my seminary education, at least I was trained in a very traditional model where I've had to relearn or start to learn a lot of ways of approaching this new missional age, this strange place that we're in. I, I too was was uh, formed in a seminary setting which very much mirrored the 20th century church, really this institutional model where priests were considered sort of CEOs of their parish. We had this idea that the church, we saw a big growth spurt in the, in the in the 1950s, which was really just the baby boom, but we didn't know it at the time. And so <laughs> right. now we look back and people look back at that time and they think, oh, that was when the church was so big and vibrant and we built tons and tons of new buildings that were way too big mm -hmm. um, for what the church was actually sized. And we look back at that and we think, oh, that's how the church has always been, which is completely false. Yeah. There's a powerful nostalgia and deep love for that time. I think that was exciting for the people who were part of that church, but there's a whole, maybe one or two whole generations that have been born since then that have never experienced anything like that and don't have that powerful nostalgia. My church here where I, where I live uh, has its historic building, 1867, perfect size for our congregation. We fit in that building. It's, it's wonderful. And then there's an education wing and the education wing's roof is flat because when the education wing was built in the 1950s, there was a whole second phase of a building project, which was to bring, build another church building on top of the education wing, which is probably about a th three times larger than the footprint wow. of, the, of the church itself. So we, there's, I see every day when I walk out of my house, I see a visual representation of what could have been if they had raised the money to build it or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad they didn't because the congregation that I serve fits so well in the traditional church. Some churches that do have larger buildings that were maybe in a bigger town or a small city, um, like where I currently live, the Episcopal Church in town is huge, can fit three or 400 people. And even on a really great Sunday, they got 100, which is good for a, a, you know, a parish of in, in the place where we are right now. But the extra space is a, a very painful visual reminder of what's missing, of who's missing. And I'm also lucky in that my parish building is small and they did not expand it in the 80s like they, they thought they were going to. And now we do fit in it. And even just the idea of looking at a mostly empty church building and thinking, oh, there are so many people missing is really a poisonous idea. Mm. Because what we, what, we, what we should be talking about is God's abundance and how, the, like, again, the God of mission has a mission for us in this world, and we will have the gifts and the skills that we need in order to uh, participate in that mission. And that's when we think about Moana, we see her over the course of the movie learning the skills from Maui that she needs in order to be a leader, to, to rediscover that old tradition in order to, uh, to be able to move her people forward. That's right. So maybe given that context, and I'm sure there's a hundred stories 
we or anyone else could tell about this situation we're in, this place we're in, and the, the call we're hearing from God to be different, let's look more deeply at Moana and look through the parts of her journey that do resonate with this time. Watching the movie again for specifically to talk about this podcast, I was struck at the very beginning of the movie at the fact that it opens with the grandmother telling a story, telling the tribal tale to all of the children. And so we, we have, we start with the sort of the primacy of the story, just like we continue to be people of the word. We have the Bible, which continues to speak to us. It is not a dead text. It is a very living text. And so we start with that story and we have this gospel, this message, this good news to share. And so when we see grandmother Tala, Tala, right? Tala, yeah. Not, not Natalie? Nope, it's definitely not Natalie. <laughs> Grandma Nal- Natalie, the cra- village crazy lady. <laughs> I, we have her telling this story. Um, the, the, she is that lore bearer. She is the storyteller. She's the holder of that oldest tradition. And yeah, she calls herself the village crazy lady because she's not as concerned as her son or the rest of the village about what's, what's going on. She, and she becomes Moana's a spiritual mentor. I love that you always see her kind of on the outskirts. I mean, she's, the opening scene is her talking to the children but when in the Where You Are song, she's always viewed on the outskirts. And she kind of reminds me a little bit of John the Baptist or any of our biblical prophets that are on the margins. And they're able to see something a little different because of that perspective. They're that in that mentor role, um, the old wizard like Obi-Wan, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, she's, she's able to reconnect Moana with the, with the true history of her people, which is not the, the story that her father wants to tell. Right. And she even says to Moana, you've heard all our people's stories, but one. Uh, and that's right after Moana says, is there something you want to tell me? And grandma says, is there something you want something to hear? you want to hear? Yeah, you've heard all our people's stories, but one. And that's when she brings her to the cave and shows her the boats. And Moana has that moment of sort of self-discovery about her people mm. and about what is, what is in her own heart. Right, because she's been sensing, she's able to see that something is wrong in her home. She loves her home. She loves her people. She wants to be the best leader she can be for them. But there's something happening. Uh, the coconuts are blighted. The fish aren't there. And her change, the changes that she recommends is to go fish beyond the reef, to move the coconut groves, to try to make these changes so they can keep surviving. And she realizes in reconnecting with Grandma Tala that there's something way bigger at work. Their, their world is having the life leached out of it because the heart of Tefiti is gone. And so she is unable to do to go out on her mission until she reconnects with that history that they were voyagers and frankly gets a boat that can handle the lagoon. Yeah, the boat that she starts with at the beginning gets broken with one wave. Well, and we, we see that same parallel with her father. The reason he's a, he wants them to remain close to the island on the inside the lagoon is he has a very painful personal experience with trying to voyage out. He and his best friend went out to go beyond the reef and his friend was killed in the, in the process because they were in the small boat, because they didn't have the skills to go beyond. So he's a, he's a strong leader. He's a good leader for the time he's been in, but the waters are changing and he's not willing to imagine anything different because of his personal pain. 
Right. And we see that in a couple of places. First, the, the, the chief says, as long as we stay on our very safe island, we'll be fine. Which again, just I had alarm bells going in my head for as long as we stay in our churches, we'll be fine. We don't, we, we're just going to, we're going to hunker down and we're going to weather whatever this is, as opposed to think, seeing what, what, what we're actually in, which is this huge sea change, this paradigm shift. Uh, every 500 years in the church, we've had one of these big paradigm shifts. Uh, and you can see that in, um, is it Phyllis Tickle's book, The Great Emergence and a few I other books? I believe so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Where the first 500 years of the church um, up until the fall of Rome were first that missional age that we talked about. And then the Roman Empire adopting Christianity and having that was the beginning of Christendom. And then that second 500 years, as we move into that, that next phase of the growth of monasticism into the Dark Ages. You say Dark Ages. What was Very, I supposed to say? Middle Ages. Excuse dark me. Ages is judgy. Is it really? As a, as a medievalist. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I Very sensitive around that. The medieval times. <laughs> medieval times um and then we have and then then we had the the schism between the east and the western churches and then again we have another 500 years and we have the reformation around 1500 and there uh, we, there were advances in technology at each of these places as well where we have the printing press around the same time as the reformation uh and and now with the new uh, we have new communication structures as we move into whatever this new age is going to be. And yet the chief, as you said, is, is, is holding on to that old paradigm. And we see it because he is looking for technical fixes to their problem. Right. He wants to just, yeah, he agrees with Milana just to move, you know, fix the roof, move the coconut grove. Yeah, and then they say, well, fish from that side of the island? No, uh, but there's no fish there. Oh, what about the other side of the island? Nope, there's no fish there. What about the other, other side of the island? Nope, there's no fish there. And Moana is trying to break out of that paradigm and move from those technical fixes into some sort of adaptive change. And that's why she says, let's go beyond the reef. She still doesn't know quite what that means yet for her, but she knows that they need to break out of this very small provincial uh, uh, I almost started singing Beauty and the Beast right there. <laughs> it's uh, easy to do. <laughs> it's really easy to do. Um, and to get beyond. And once she's beyond the reef, she starts to understand what her people really were. I recently heard from someone, this struck me, and I'll probably keep thinking about this, but there's kind of two reactions to change, especially in the church. One is to be chicken little and scream that the sky is falling and just completely lose lose your mind because of the anxiety. And the other is to be an ostrich and stick your head in the sand and just completely ignore what's going on and say, we'll be fine. Um, and the healthy place being somewhere in between. And mm -hmm. so I see, you know, the chief as being the ostrich and the head in the sand. We have these rules. Who needs a new song? This old one's all we need. We're fine the way we are. And we will weather the store, keep safe. And I don't think there's anyone really... On the chicken little side, there's not a lot of anxiety. I think the people are pretty- Not yet, yeah. Not yeah. yet, give it another 10 years maybe. And Moana does really strike the balance in between. Yeah, and the chief says, remember, the chief says, we have one rule. One and rule, yeah. What does Moana say to that? A rule when there were fish. An old rule. An old from rule, From when right. there were fish. Yep. And if that's not a perfect, uh, a perfect parallel to where we find ourselves in the church, 
Because what you said about those two things uh, in between the sticking your head in the sand and the running around call crazy, where you have uh, a complete dismissal on one, the one hand and a complete chaos on the other, you have uh, what in leadership studies is called the productive zone of disequilibrium. Mm-hmm. When you're in this, what's called this productive zone of disequilibrium, you are on neither edge of that extreme and you're able to... Mm-hmm you need to move forward because the equilibrium has been broken, but it is not so broken that you're paralyzed. And that's as leaders, that's one of the places for us to help people to, to live in that productive zone so that we're not just doing these technical fixes to make ourselves feel better, nor are we completely running around like chicken little. And do you see that in the way Moana approaches? Like her journey is not comfortable, but she doesn't she doesn't have all the answers, but she's able to stay in that cautiously optimistic and open place of learning something new, of doing something different without completely falling apart. But Moana has this heart of a voyager. She wants to discover something new. And in discovering something older than her father's tradition, she realizes what her people could be again. And that's the adaptation that they need for this new paradigm. What I love about the Moana story is she has some of the awkwardness of a lot of Disney heroes where she's, you know, tripping over herself as any young adult does, but she's not critical of her homeland. Uh, I think of like Belle, you know, singing, I want more than this provincial life. I think of Hercules wanting to, you know, go the distance and move beyond where he is because they don't fit in. Moana fits into her her role there. She's a good leader, but there something has changed and she is the only one who can see that something more is needed. And so I love that she leaves not out of dismissal of her home, not because she's rejecting it, but because she knows deep in her heart that something needs to change and she's the only one who can do it. So she doesn't dismiss the traditions of her family. She just knows that they're not appropriate anymore. She, her discovery of that we were voyagers, that her people used to be seafaring people instead of just living on the island was a joyous discovery, but doesn't cause her to think that her father is small-minded or, or a bad leader, just that there's something that needs to change. The, those ancient chiefs who ended up putting their boats under the waterfall were also responding to a changing paradigm. Because once Maui took the heart of Tefiti, and the oceans became a very difficult and dangerous place to be, the, the boats weren't coming back anymore uh, as those wayfinders went out to look for new islands to settle. And so the elders, those chieftains, sealed the boats away. Beca- and that was their adaptation. And at that time, it was a very appropriate thing to do. And then a thousand years go by, and we need to make another change and rediscover that older tradition and move forward with that a second time. And that's what Moana is about. And then she's specifically called to do that. She was picked by the ocean because of her compassion and empathy, that opening scene with her helping the little baby sea turtle out to Mm. the ocean instead of going for the beautiful shell. That choice that she made shows that she's a kind of leader that can weather the changes that are ahead. And so the ocean brings her the heart of Tefiti, which is then dropped in the sand, but then somehow Grandma Tala gets it. I forget how that happens. I assume she was just sort of watching Moana. <laughs> I think she was watching yeah. Moana from the, yeah. you know. That baby turtle is really interesting uh, because yeah. there's it's like a little tiny microcosm of the whole movie. The baby turtle Whoa. is safe on the, on the shore under the leaves, 
<gasps> and oh, then, that's right. But it needs to get to the water in order to live and grow and be the turtle that it's supposed to be. And Moana, oh, like ushers, Moana. Moana ushers the turtle into the water. That's the whole movie in 30 seconds. Whoa, so she's like the turtle. And who would be the baby Moana? Would it be like Maui and Tala? I don't know. Kind of shepherd <laughs> in the ocean? I, <laughs> All right, I'm trying to overextend this metaphor, I my guess. My metaphor was good until you, until you ruined it with your logic. I love to ruin metaphors. <laughs> just take them and just keep adding on layers until they're, they're gone. Um, there's, some, there's some fun moments where, I, you know, as audience, I, I, one thing you've taught me about watching movies is to look for how the audience has an avatar in the film. I've never really done that before, but you did that mm. last time with... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Ant Man. Ant Man, and in in this one, there's a moment where Hey Hey, when they're out on the water, <laughs> and we we first find that Hey Hey's on the boat, and Moana takes the coconut shell off Hey Hey's head, and Hey Hey just starts screeching, and then it happens a couple of times over and over again. Yeah, and we're just out in this open water, and so I, is that <laughs> that's us, us as Hey Hey. Yeah, we are Hey Hey. What's the water? Uh, well, again, we're talking about this in this idea of the church right right we right. find ourselves in this new situation and we take the coconut off our head and we just start screaming because it's like wait this is not what we're, we're used to this is this is a whole new thing and i need to learn now how to do what what is my role now in this situation uh and then now we can be moana again and and start learning okay, how to find but for that just that one moment where hey hey where we Great, just have I don't that, want to be oh, any longer. We, we just have that, you know, oh, expletive deleted, you know. <laughs> what what are we going to do now? Right, the chicken little response. The the sky is falling, everything's terrible. Well, I'm glad that we get to shift back to being Moana instead of being Hey Hey cuz he does not have a great showing in this film. So maybe we we can recap. We've had changing paradigm, old models of leadership that were fully appropriate for their time and helpful no longer being appropriate. We have this person with a heart of adventure and a spirit of empathy who realizes something different needs to happen and has the bravery to proceed. She's aided in that quest by her grandma who reunites her with the stories of her people and provides the tools she needs. And then what? Then there's the whole second half of the movie, it seems. Yeah, and then the wayfinding where Maui's actually teaching Moana to wayfind we see the culmination of Moana's search where she knows that her people are were wayfinders. She knows that they used to search for new islands to go to, but she doesn't know how to do it. And there is nobody who has the skill set to teach her. And that's why Maui is such an important character in the film because he can give her those skills. Right. We almost talked about her, him in the mentor episode, right? And then we... Yeah. And in the trickster episode, we kept not talking about him. <laughs> but now we can talk about him. So he reconnects her to this ancient knowledge, which we had as our quote from Nerd Cannon about not just, it's not just the technical, you know, sales and knots, he says, it's, it's knowing where you are by knowing where you've been. And I also resonate with that as a church that needs to connect back to our history, the recent history, so we can grieve what's changed and attend to that grief as it's a holy thing. But also if we ignore it, it'll just keep rotting away at us. But then looking back even further and knowing who we've been a long time ago and being able to kind of plot a course from there, not knowing the exact end goal, but knowing enough of the next step and the next step and the next step in order to proceed faithfully. 
you, you made me think of something. Oh, talking about that older, the, the oldest tradition brings us to our quote from the Acts of the Apostles, where, oh, yeah. where we have Peter, the Apostle Peter, who is, you know, the rock of the church. On In Matthew's gospel, we hear Jesus say, on, your, on this rock, I will build my church. And we have Peter who has just had this vision of the sheet coming down with the animals on it and, and God telling him to eat uh, these, uh, the animals that were unclean. And then Peter having the encounter with Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his family, and the, the family wanting to be baptized and having the Holy Spirit come to them. Then Peter goes back and meets with the church in Jerusalem and tells them the story. And the end of that story is our quote from scripture for today. And it's incredible that Peter tells them about going to the Gentile, these Gentiles, and then the, the church of Jerusalem are silenced, and then they praise God, saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. The, the church did not shrivel back up into this insular thing. It realized what Jesus was saying all along at the beginning of Acts of the Apostles to spread the good news out from Jerusalem to Judea and to, to, the, to all the earth. And that's what Peter is doing here. And the church, that's to me, the, that moment when Peter realizes what God is really calling him to do, which is to spread this this message as far and wide out of any kind of tribal or parochial system. Uh, Peter does that and sees the blessing of God being shown to all people. And that's a big paradigm shift from what earlier religion was, which was very, again, very tribal, very much about a particular people and the religion that Peter and Paul really founded based on Jesus's message was at least at its start trying to be a uh, this faith that connected all people, and then we can we can argue about how Christendom then took that developed from and, there, yeah, and developed from there, but then took it and and messed it up in certain ways, and led back into a tribalism which was very national nationally based and uh, and very doctrinally based as opposed to being about invitations and bringing people in and saying this is what we found, share it with us. So Peter, in a way, is actually kind of wayfinding by telling that story from the recent past, sure, but he's determining a new path, a way forward based on where he's been. And I think that's kind of the way that leaders of the church are called to read the signs around them, the way that Moana reads the wind and the sky and the stars in order to take the next step and find a path forward. Because I think it's hard, it's hard to know where to go when everything's changing. And you really have to just literally like dream it up. And, and Moana is given a, ma a mission almost explicitly by her grandma. You will, you know, you know, go find Maui, make him board your boat. And she repeats that several times in the movie to him, that explicit mission she's been given. It makes me wonder actually if she hadn't have been given that, that direction, would she have been able to find her way on, the, on her own? She'd have to dream it up the way that we're called to dream our next steps. And the grandmother, again, remember, is the lore bearer. She is the one who knows that older tradition. It's not the one that's being honored at the moment, but she still knows it. She practices it. She knows that the boats are there. She also says, you know, in, the, in that opening song, what does she say to the water when she's dancing with the water? The water is mischievous. I like how it misbehaves. Uh, there's a lot of things she there's, says. It's right before that. It's, it's her, her, her lines right before that. Um, I like I to like dance, to with, dance the with the water. Yeah. The undertow and the waves. So, yeah. so she is not afraid of the water. 
but but because the grandmother is this lore bearer she's yeah. able to pass on what moana needs in order to do that rediscovery of the tradition and as storytellers as holders of the story of the people of god by continuing to connect to that story we can see how where they went based on god's movement in their lives and how we're called to go based in movement in our lives so we dwell in this word of scripture that's one of our big spiritual practices through through study through uh, sharing through mm-hmm. for you and me through preaching uh, mm-hmm. and then that story can help enliven us into whatever the future is that God is putting in front of us right so we don't have living lore bears the way Tala is for Moana but we have this as you said living not dead not pickled not petrified we have this living active text that is a guide for us which is the Bible um, and it's it speaks to us in different ways every day. It's not just that there's one meaning for every passage and that stays static, but it's always speaking to us in different ways and revealing the voice of God to us. It's interesting you mentioned earlier about the direction that the grandmother gives to Moana, and it's repetitive over the course of the movie. We hear it, mm. you will board my boat, you will, we will sail, and so forth. And then at the very end, Moana says it about herself. Yes. It's not you will do this, it's I will do this. Be to Maui's not there at that moment and she's now she has learned and she's become an incredible sailor fairly quickly. Uh you know, she's doing some like There was a montage, Adam. Yachting, there was a yeah. learning montage. <laughs> yeah. I know how much you My like montages. <laughs> yeah. But she's become like this America's Cup yachting expert, you know, by the end of the film and she can turn the boat around 180 degrees and get away from Taka oh, and all so this. Good. Uh and and so she has developed this expertise based on Maui's, uh, Maui's guidance, and that expertise now can mix with her empathy, with her compassion, with her curiosity, you know, with her sense of call, um, and with her bravery to allow her to be that uh, adaptive leader that she needs to be once she gets home, and to give that sense of vision to her people and bring those boats out from uh, their tomb. Well, that I think that gets encapsulated in that song, I Am Moana, where she's, Maui has just departed after their first kind of failed attempt to bring the heart back and they encounter Taka and he sort of semi breaks his fish hook and he says like, you know, the ocean shows wrong and, and he bamps out of there and she's left alone, but it's Tala visiting her and her uh, spirit For, kind force of ghost. feel. Force ghost. Yes, exactly. When Tala returns in the I Am Moana scene, she helps Moana reconnect with her calling and her narrative. She's asking, like, remember who you are. And then it's Moana who's the one who expresses, you know, I have delivered us to where we are. I have journeyed this far and I'm everything I've learned and more. And I'm still called to do this mission. And I love there's a part in that movie where as she's singing this, all the ghosts of the ancestors' boats kind of race around mm, her. Yeah. So she's reconnected with her own story, but then also with the story of her people and her purpose. And then she sets out renewed doesn't need Maui, although then he does swoop in at the last minute. And so we see again the story, like the need for story for her own and for her people's to be reconnected and Tala as the one who brings that. Mm, yeah, that's there you go. Well, slam dunk on that one, Carrie. That's fantastic. Yeah. I had forgotten, but I'd forgotten about how those the, the you see the the boats, the spectral mm-hmm. boats on the water. They're, they're there with her, you know, in that experience, in that history that she bears. And we see Moana being this 
adaptive leader, this, this leader who can take a situation, look at it from a different angle, and then bring in a new vision to it when she realizes who Taka is. Oh, yeah. That's, I think that's one of her most nimble-minded moments, you know, able to, to take all the anxiety and put it aside and put the pieces together. I love I love the moment where she's there on the, on the island, looks down and sees, and the sort of the body of Tafiti is mm. gone, and then all of a sudden we realize what has what has happened once the heart of Tafiti gets ripped out of her. So once Moana restores the heart of Tafiti, we have this great moment, which is very reminiscent of Princess Mononoke, when mm-hmm. that movie ends with returning the head of of the god to the god and then we have the same type of burgeoning growth all that all that those flowers bursting forth when i saw it i was like oh they're doing princess mononoke and then we get she gets the new boat from tafiti and um heads home but then they all set out together i love in love in that final scene moana is the one who's teaching her people she kind of like shows her mom how to tie the knots she shows she's kind of gently correcting her father as he steers the boat she's teaching them how to be wayfinders and how to be voyagers it's the same kind of camera shots as in the song um mm-hmm. what's what's the song called uh um the one like oh, sings we read the wind and the skies when the sun we know where yeah. we are. We, we know, know who we are. We know who we are. Yes. Yes. That's what it's called. <laughs> we know who we are, who we are. Yeah. It's just because it just devolves into a, into a just Moana sing along. <laughs> oh, it's too easy. It's super easy to do. Wait, so it's, so it's the same sweeping shots that if you want to. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. The same, the same sweeping shots as Moana saw in, in the vision of, or maybe just the audience sees in the vision of the early Wayfinders when Lin-Manuel, Lin-Manuel Miranda is singing. And we then see Moana doing those same things on these beautiful boats with oh. all of the inlaid kind of uh, um, pieces of shell and, and whatever is they're designed with a so gorgeous and so we see that these boats these, these boats were meant to be on the open water they're these large crafts they're all out you know looking for for new territory and in that final scene there is still the sense of community that is so beautiful about the life on the island where like they you know they have a lot of projects together they work together they're all doing that but in this new way a new way that's actually rather old setting out with purpose and joy and discovery and with this sense of community, they haven't changed terribly. They've just adapted to a new paradigm, a new normal. And the last shot of the film, before we, we zoom in on Moana, is, as the fleet is going out, we, mm. we rise up on those moss-covered rocks that have built the island higher and higher. And we end on the conch shell and, and this conch shell, of course, is, is Moana's contribution. And, and what is this shell, but it's something that is used to call a people. We're jumping back into our nerdy Christian book club by looking at chapters four, five, and six of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. So here's a brief recap. Chapter four at Flourish and Blots. At the burrow, Harry gets a glimpse into a whole different world, one where magic permeates every part of life and, even more surprisingly, everyone seems to like him. But full immersion into the magical world isn't without its discomforts and dangers. When traveling by flu powder for the first time ever, 
Harry gets lost and ends up in the worst part of Wizarding London, Nocturne Alley, dodging an encounter with Draco Malfoy and his unpleasant father Lucius, who are there offloading questionable materials. He is rescued by Hagrid, but soon is co-opted by the conceited Gilderoy Lockhart, who sees Harry as an easy publicity grab. Adding injury to this insult, Lucius Malfoy oozes his way back onto the page and insults the Weasleys so terribly that Arthur loses his temper and the two end up rolling on the floor, brawling. Needless to say, the group is subdued as they make their way back to the burrow. Chapter 5. The Whomping Willow The glorious summer draws to a close with one last Weasley family meal, and it's back to Hogwarts. But when Harry and Ron try to get through the barrier to platform nine and three quarters, it's blocked. Something is keeping them on the other side. Rather than, say, wait five minutes for Ron's parents to return, or use Hedwig to send a letter to Hogwarts, Ron comes up with a brilliant plan that makes perfect sense if you are an impulsive 12-year-old Gryffindor with more courage than problem-solving skills. The boys will take the flying car all the way from London to Scotland. The plan goes perfectly until it doesn't. The car loses power as they cross over the boundary to Hogwarts and crashes into a murderous branch, lashing tree, snapping Ron's wand. Even worse, they are discovered by Professor Snape, who tells them they were spotted by muggles. Surprisingly, they are not expelled or arrested, though perhaps facing Dumbledore's disappointment is worse. At least they have the admiration of their roommates and the knowledge that flying a car into the Whomping Willow will secure their place as Hogwarts legends forever. Chapter 6, Gilderoy Lockhart. The glory soon fades as the school year begins. Hermione is giving the boys the cold shoulder, and Ron receives a howler, a tool of magical parenting that delivers an ear-blistering scolding in front of the whole school. Their new defense against the dark arts professor is the insufferable Gilderoy Lockhart, who seems convinced that everything Harry does is a grab for publicity to grow his fame. Projection much? An overeager, muggle-born first-year named Colin attaches himself to Harry in unapologetic hero worship. This terrible day ends in Lockhart's class, who turns out to be as incompetent as he is conceited, unleashing a horde of tricky pixies on the class and running away, leaving the trio to clean them up. Perhaps the most surprising thing is that Hermione, usually an unbiased and discerning witch, seems smitten with Lockhart and defends him. The Ford Anglia is a TARDIS. It is. It's bigger on the inside. On I the also inside. had that note. You did? <laughs> Which means that we're probably both gigantic nerds. Probably. I think we've established that pretty well through pretty, 10 episodes well of, of a yeah. podcast. Yeah. Um, I don't have a ton of notes for these three chapters. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll have some more substance to talk about as Chamber of Secrets gets further in. But these first yeah. six chapters have been little bit Kinda light rough. on stuff to talk about. I've got a couple things though. Um, one yeah. is Harry never mentioning his wizarding money to the Dursleys and, and he says, or the narration says, he didn't think their horror of anything connected with magic would stretch to a large pile of gold. Oh, of course. That is spot on. It's interesting idea into the character of the Dursleys that what is the one thing that's going to uh, triumph over their hatred of magic, and that's greed. Money. Wasn't it something they say, like, principles go out the window when you're faced with, you know, like, desperation or something? Not that they're desperate, but their greed would overwhelm their principles, certainly. Oh, yeah. And we see that all the time. I mean, that's just a human yeah. a human thing. We can justify just about anything if we want it badly enough. There's a great line from, is it Anne Lamott, the writer Anne Lamott, 
where she's talking about God and human projection onto God. And it's basically like um, something like you're on the wrong path when you, when God seems to hate all the same people you do. Oh, sure. You know what I'm talking about? And I feel, yeah, I feel like the Dursleys would relate. Well, they would be kind of who she's talking about. You know, if they were God fearing people, they'd probably imagine God that loves neat and tidy things just like they do and hates all the same people they hate. Which it's so delightful to see Harry at the burrow though in these cha- in this early chapter because he's liked and he's seen. Uh, we talked a little bit about that last time, but the fact it's really sad that the most unusual thing about life at the burrow is that people like him. Mm, yeah, I noticed basic, that. Yeah, basic need. Um, and some of it's a little bit uh, tokenized, like Mr. Weasley's interest in living with the Muggles. He's kind of, you know, has a professional curiosity about Harry's life, although it's also terrifying that he knows so little about muggles, given that he technically works with them. Uh, foreshadowing for ministry incompetence to come, I guess. The, the mirror takes an interest more than the Dursleys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's more seen by these inanimate objects. And by Ginny, who mm. uh, keeps just, she's just red-faced the whole time. She, she's blushing the whole time and putting her elbow in the butter. Oh, I do love though, um, because it's even though it's third person, it's from Harry's perspective. There's like a tiny hint of foreshadowing when like her face is referred to as glowing like the setting sun, which is a very non 12 year old boy way of describing a person's like blushing face. So I think mm. I feel like there's a foreshadowing there to their future of their, of their relationship. Yeah. Yeah. He's not, he's, and he's, he's gentle with her. Um, yeah. like he's, when she puts her elbow in the butter, he's like, he, I, he was the only one who saw it, thankfully, because, like, Percy comes downstairs. Oh, right, right. And, like, she would be mortified that he's the only one to see it, but he's kind of like, I'm the only one who saw it. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Kind of protective. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's sweet. Harry is really uncomfortable around the Weasleys because of money. Yeah. You know, once they more, get to a lot the, of money in these chapters. Yeah, when they get to the bank and they see the difference in the two vaults. Oh, but it's interesting. We talk about what are the things that we value the most. You know, we talked to the Dursleys would have valued this money mm-hmm. over their hatred of magical things. And Harry, at the beginning of chapter five, we see Harry feeling jealous of Ron for having a loving family. And at the same time, Ron is jealous of Harry for having money. And, uh, and we have this, you know, what is more important? What is the thing that is most valuable? It's right. definitely not money. It's these relationships that are so important. And it's kind of cool to see the way they share their relative wealth with each other. So Ron is not, I mean, we learn later, he is actually jealous of how much his mother loves Harry. But at the time, he's just a very welcoming, gracious host. Um, and he's willing to share this bizarre, lovely family of his with Harry. So Harry gets to partake of Ron's, you know, familial relational wealth. But then Harry, he doesn't outright give them money, but he's always willing to kind of get the tab or he like he shares a broomstick with the other Weasleys because it's clearly better than theirs. He buys ice cream and then he gives the free books yeah. to either Ginny <laughs> or Ginny. Ron to Ginny. Yeah. yeah. And then buys his own set. I do think he should have snuck. He should have snuck some galleons like into the flower pot or something if he'd been a little bit more savvy instead of just like blocking his blocking the, his vault full of gold from them oh, with his yeah. tiny 12 year old skinny boy body. Like <laughs> you're not fooling anyone, Harry. Mm-hmm. Um, but it. And, and Lucius uses the money also to, as a point of leverage against mm-hmm. Arthur to really grind his gears and get his temper going. 
Yeah, we have that famous line from Mr. Weasley. We have a very different idea of what disgraces the name of wizard, Malfoy. And it's perfectly delivered in the movie, yeah. as <laughs> I, I well know. <laughs> you, you have a big crush on the actor who plays Mr. Weasley. Uh, yeah, but that's, again, it's, we're talking about what do they value? And Malfoy values money and lineage. Mm -hmm. And the Weasleys value family, the loving bonds between the members of the family. We talked about that last episode when Fred and George were so happy to see their father, which is strange for, you know, 14-year-old boys. But they've got a great family. And we see the, um, again, more value around blood status starting to rear up in these chapters um, when they meet Colin Creevy, who admits his father is a milkman. And he's like wowed by the wizarding world. And they meet Justin Finch Fletchley, who's a very like a super posh muggle-born. His name was his name was down for Eton. His name was down oh. for Eton. <laughs> yes, but he chose Hogwarts instead, which is a you know I guess it's okay. Um, so we he, see he, that, was, you know, he really wanted to to get in there the status, you know, which as an American Eton. reading this, yeah, it did not track. But then later I was like, oh, this boy is super fancy. So he, but so that that goes to show what's valuable in the Muggle world being having your name down for a fancy public school, uh, as they would say, doesn't get you anything in the Wizarding world. He's going to be attacked by the basil, what turns out to be a basilisk, mm -hmm. um, because just because of his blood status, they don't care about his wealth, they don't care about his kind heart. It just cares about the blood status, and that's something that Malfoy sort of unsubtly introduces in these chapters. And it's interesting that when, it, but it's more subtle with Justin and Colin in that in neither place are they actually said to be muggle-born. It's the mm. context clues around them that we know they're muggle-born from the, the milkman and the, real, the regular camera and the thing about going yeah. to Eaton. So we have to, the, through the context clues, we have to go, oh, these guys are muggle-born like Hermione. Um, and, then we, and then we have Hagrid coming in and talking about bad blood again, talking about the mm. Malfoys. And so we talk about, well, what disgraces the name of wizard? From Malfoy's perspective, it's it's these kind of grimy, commoner type wizards. Yeah. And from Hagrid's perspective, it's these people who are uh, just highfalutin, giving the wizards a bad name because of the way that they treat other people. And and Hagrid calls it bad blood. Not You can be pure blood and have bad blood. And it, right. we've talked a lot about Hagrid having some of these biases around blood status sure. as well. And and Ron to an next, you know, Ron shows those prejudices as well, but but Hagrid specifically around blood purity, which is a little disturbing when you consider his, you know, his background is a little maybe self-oppression there. Um, but his his comment to Harry in the first book about, you know, your parents are such good wizards, there's a, you know, of course you would be. Um, and this idea that sort of power is hereditary, whereas Dumbledore would massively disagree. I think we, we, so we see a lot of, there's a lot of valuing in these chapters. Um, I noticed that with Lockhart kind of, he values celebrity and fame. And so he's tending to see the world through that lens by always, you know, as I, we've joked in the chapter descriptions, you know, projecting his own perspective, his own motivations onto Harry in a really uncomfortable way that, you know, just oozing, slimy, gross way he talks to him where it's all about, it's very smarmy. It's about like, you know, gaining, he would be a great modern day influencer on Instagram. Yeah, I, I like the, the idea that these chapters really are about what, what are we valuing? Money, fame, family, uh, which of these are going to bring us the most life and, and which are going to isolate us from other people and from ourselves. And also how, how they kind of uh, 
skew your perspective. Um, I think you see it also with Snape, the way he values taking Harry down a notch. So, of course, he's going to read every behavior of Harry's as a way of garnering attention. Mm-hmm. And silencing him and Ron mm. when they try to explain. He does not let exactly. them say anything. He sees people like really stuck in their, in their ways, in their perspectives, and it totally changes how they see the world. One other thing I wanted to talk about was um, the Harry and Ron's punishment uh, for the flying car. They yeah. get a detention. That's their, you know, official punishment from the school, which who cares? It's detention. Uh, <laughs> you know. Oh, um, no. Yeah. Oh, no. A detention. Uh, then we get all of these other ways that they're being punished. We get the howler, sure. which is really public shaming, which is kind mm-hmm. of awful. But it's a perfect tool for Molly Weasley. It's just an extension of the way she behaves in private. Mm-hmm. And then we have... We have guilt over the Whomping Willow. Remember, Professor Sprout has the bandages. Aww. And then, the, but the worst one, and the one that I identify with so well, is feeling horrible about letting Mr. Weasley down. Yeah. After he was so good to Harry, and, oh, and I remember, awful. you know, as a as a young person, child, and and teenager, my parents didn't have to punish me a lot because if I did something wrong, I would kind of self punish. Mm-hmm. Like, I would just feel like all they had to say was, "We're disappointed in you." And I would like be Dumbledore. like, I was done, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. Dumbledore does here. And, and that was enough. I, Put your ears in the oven door. No, no, not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> that self and that corporal punishment, like not the courthouse cor- corporal punishment, But just, oh, okay. just but thinking, yeah. oh man, I, I didn't want to let my, my parents down. And, and then somehow I did. And that was just, ugh. and I, I can see that in, sure. in them with their relationship with Mr. Weasley here. Just the idea that, yeah, someone who was so good to you that you've done something careless and I don't think the boys are ever really as careless as this ever again. I can't think of an, a situation where they do anything this egregious. They they knowingly break rules at, at this book about brewing this Polyjuice potion, but they do that with, for like a better reason. Yeah, there's like this a plan. Seems, there's a yeah. There's a plan. There's like a full knowledge of what they're doing. Um, this just seems it's so hard to reread um, because it, it just feels dumb. It's it's foolish. And they don't think they do anything like that ever again. But again, it's it's J.K. Rowling putting her mindset into the the head of a twelve year old boy, and <laughs> they're gonna, you know, I guess they're gonna steal the flying car. I mean, Ron probably wanted to drive it, and this was his perfect, oh yeah, you know, chance to do it. He's probably just mad because his brothers never let him drive it when they were stealing it to <laughs> when rescue they were ste- Harry. When they were stealing it, yeah. I love that at the very end of the chapter, chapter six. Ron is completely wise to Lockhart's con. Oh yeah, because Ron is the is the kind of the world the, the 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 street smarts of the three of the trio. Surprisingly, yeah, that's a Str- good strangely, point. but he's yeah. If we think about it from like Dungeons and Dragons statistics, Hermione mm-hmm. is intelligence. Um, Ron, and Ron, has Ron has more actually wisdom in in that yeah. kind of discernment of of what is going on with this guy. I'm not sure if Harry has charisma. If we can like break it down nicely into those three stats, but um, Wait, roll up character sheets. Yeah, roll up, the trio. There are tons of character sheets for <laughs> oh, the trio God, I out bet. there. I bet. <laughs> but I just love that Ron is because Hermione is is smitten with Lockhart here, right? And Ron's thinking, no, this guy has no idea what he's doing. There's kind of like as an early rule that came about in those really nerdy books I like to read that Ron is always wrong except when he's joking and Hermione is always right except when she gets emotional which is kind of crummy Mm, um I don't think the Ron bit is is right um 
because his father never becomes minister of magic. That was one of the things that people were predicting. See, jokes about it. Anyway, sidebar. But Hermione <laughs> is a very clear thinker. And this is kind of crappy and gender, but when she gets emotional, she does, or clouds her thinking a lot. And she gets, she makes mistakes. She gets flustered and she forgets things. Um, in this case, I, I wish it wasn't the one female character that was like, oh, her emotions get in the way of her logical thinking and intellect. Yeah. But yeah. It, that's how she's written. And that is clearly at work here, whereas Ron's able to, I wonder if he's able to kind of, because he's with his trickster brothers all the time, he's able to be like, I got you. I, I can see you're, a charlatan. Yeah. Yeah. I can spot you from a mile away. My brothers did the Cornish pixie thing on me five years ago. <laughs> I know it's a <laughs> fake spell, just like the one with to turn scabbers yellow. Hey, I think we talked more about that than we than we expected to. <laughs> there it well no, yeah, the theme of what we value. Yeah. Clearly, yeah, there has it emerged. Is. We figured it out. Been revealed. So chapters uh seven, eight, and nine for the next episode of our book club and those are mudbloods and murmurs the death day party and the writing on the wall happy reading thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for nerdy christians you can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media facebook.com slash nerdy christians and on twitter at nerdy christians where Carrie speaks in memes. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my website, wherethewind.com. And please do check out my new fantasy novel, The Islands of Shattered Glass, on Amazon. It's there in paperback and in ebook. The ebook is even cheaper than the paperback, and I get more royalties for that, crazily Whoa. enough. It's pretty cool. So get the ebook. I read it too. You should yeah. read it. Hey, thanks, Carrie. Been endorsed and by me. You, you can always find Carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. May Jesus, who stilled the raging waters of the sea, bring you peace. May the Holy Spirit, who brooded over the face of the deep, bring you inspiration. And may God, who separated the dry land from the waters, bring you safely to your voyage's end and bless you where you are. Amen. Amen.